Welcome to the Bioelectronics Podcast by Neurocore. I'm your host, Rick Rowan, and this is where we can hear about how bioelectronics is changing healthcare and providing benefits to both patients and healthcare systems worldwide. Welcome to this week's edition of the Bioelectronics Podcast. This week I'm joined by regular co-host Dr. James Somaru and Kevin Wright, who is Neurocore Head of Brand Global. Welcome both. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. Uh, Kevin, you've been both with myself and Neurocore since the beginning. Um, as with many startups, uh, lots of hats have to be worn. So you do a lot of uh, research into obviously market research as well as brand research, but that then blends into a lot of even scientific research um, on that basis. Do you want to give our listeners a bit of insight into your journey thus far? Yeah, as you say, my my role is is, is multi-hatted, um, if I can use that phrase. So it encompasses an awful lot. Um, I suppose a, a good place to start with that is, is why I was interested in the whole process in the first place um, when we first started talking about this. And I, I don't think you'd even arrived in the UK uh, and we met and, and you discussed your vision for, for what you wanted to do with bioelectronics. So I think that was the key for me was why you wanted to do it, not necessarily the process or the kit or anything else, but it, it was the vision that you talked about. Um, so my interest in it, I suppose, goes all the way back into the last century, at the time that I was involved in um, physiology and involved in moving things at the boundary of, of human performance at that time. But the potential of the body and the physiology of the body um, to be able to, to increase either performance um, were areas of real interest to me. So, so that was the key to it, really, is, is how those technologies could actually be developed and the benefit that those technologies can bring to wider population. And, and that was really where I, I felt um, that, that desire to get involved in it. Um, and I think that's underpinned an awful lot of what we've been working on since because it, it's gone from that vision. Um, and I think you're out of the box thinking with it to look at the context of these things in a possibly slightly different way and, and start joining dots up for how the technologies could be brought forward in ways that would have benefit to people that perhaps hadn't been looked at before. Um, so I think that was the stimulation for me for it. Yeah. It's an interesting point about how they, you know, the, you know, how we think about or how Neurocore itself thinks about uh, the application of technology. I mean, we, we think about uh, not only, of course, uh, how it may integrate with, you know, with uh, people from a lifestyle perspective, as, as well as obviously the clinical and therapeutic applications, but, you know, j just, where the massive gaps are with regards to the the use of the tech and obviously on the development side. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I was looking at different areas before we spoke about this, not, not just to talk about the journey that we've had to build a brand proposition for it, but what the actual potential for the technologies were. I mean, I suppose my first experience with this was, as I said, back in in the 80s and I, I was involved in, in what was then called the Inner Space Programme. So we were pushing the boundaries 
of performance, right, right at the edge, really. I mean, as, as deep as you can possibly get in the ocean, um, both with the equipment and from a, a human performance point of view. Um, and in ways that perhaps hadn't been looked at before. So it, again, we was out of the box thinking, but the potential for human physiology, um, both positive and negative in, in those environments became an area of interest for me. Um, even to the point of how pressure started to affect how we were functioning and the deeper we went, the implications of things like our central nervous system or how how um, um, neurological functioning was working or in table development. So the bioelectronic aspects of that has always been a component of the areas that, that I was interested in. And I think what's been really interested in that is that here we are in 2020, um, and that clarity of thinking, I suppose, is only just being brought into a context to make that available to every man every woman um, and I think that's also part of what you're doing with this is that you're bringing that insight of advanced technologies um, and again I was looking this morning because we were doing some research on implantable um, neurostimulation devices where for the last 50 years um, there's been a process to implant uh, neurostimulation for pain killing um, in ways that we could probably argue that you're bringing forward that could be doing non-invasively, that, that don't require that sort of implant. Yeah, I'd, I'd argue um, it's not even a proposition. It's, it's, it's provable. But yeah, again, an interesting point. You mentioned there about your uh, diving, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about, Kevin, tell us a bit about your history. Oh, um, yeah, but it's sort of a journey of two halves, really. The first half of my career was spent um, in the military, but in, in, in the Royal Navy. I, I joined at 19 um, and went through conventional training to become a, um, a seaman officer at the time. Um, so this would have been late 70s when, when we still had a number of ships that actually went places. Um, and it never occurred to me to be anything other than that. I was going to drive ships and then I was sent off to do an aptitude for a diving course as a midshipman, which is about the lowest you can be in the Navy at the time. Um, and it was a day's course, hated every minute of it. It was in Gibraltar and never thought any more about it until um, I was sent to my first proper ship, which I think at the time was HMS Silver, and it was by way of a place called HMS Vernon, which I'd never heard of. Um, and when I called up to find out about it, they said, yeah, that, that's the Navy Diving School, and you'll be off there because you passed the aptitude because the ship needs a diving officer. And I hated it for the first two weeks, absolutely loathed it, dark, miserable, cold, bleak. Um, but slowly started to, I don't know, enjoy it, and suddenly find things within <laughs> it that I hadn't anticipated. Um, and my first ship, actually, it was... I was 21 and I was, as well as my other jobs, I had a, a ship's diving team, which were 12 reprobates, a bunch of inflatable boats. And, and we got sent off to the Far East and we were diving on the north end of the Barrier Reef before anybody had ever got to it. We had to hitch a lift out with, um, I think, the Australian Air Force and, and started to dive in absolutely pristine conditions and to see things that perhaps other people hadn't seen before. 
Um, and I never really looked back from that. I volunteered on to become one of the Navy's um, diving officers, which is another year's course of specialization. And from there, I went on to saturation diving, which was a very early stage for the Navy, um, and got sent to join the American Inner Space Program. And I, I was on that program for four years, um, working on diving table development, um, equipment development, um, and just pushing the boundaries um, at the time, um, because there was, there was a big push for, for underwater exploration. Um, and found myself flying all over the world with a mixed nationality team um, doing recovery search, um, as well as saturation diving. So that, that led on to coming back to the Royal Navy um, and latterly setting to work the Navy's diving systems and HMS Challenger. Um, so I, I, was, I was really in that edge of, as I said, pushing um, both the physical and technical boundaries of what was possible. Um, and we achieved an enormous amount at the time. Mm. So, yes, yeah, quite exciting. Wow. And when did you get into cycling? Something that's a bit to James's heart as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in Florida. I mean, I made that sound really hard, didn't I? But I, I was in northwest Florida, and it was right at the beginning of the, the, the triathlon. Um, I wouldn't say boom, because it wasn't. It was right at the beginning of triathlon. And because I was already in the military and already you know, that was part of my role was, was the physical fitness, I just gravitated towards triathlon and, and raced all across America against people like Dave Scott, Scott Tinley, right at the beginning. Um, was good, but never going to be a professional. And I had the opportunity in the military to, to train. Um, but the cycling, I, I just developed a, a passion for it. And I absolutely loved it. Um, and started racing. So I, I sort of weaned off all the other stuff and just concentrated on the bike. Self-experimentation was always part of that um, process, but non-pharma was absolutely key to that at the beginning. Um, so whilst there were pharmacological opportunities to increase performance, um, none of us really embrace that we were looking for other ways of doing so always interested in advances in technology always interested in kit design always interested in, in new training and so the experience with um, bioelectronics at the beginning was um, in the first instance funnily enough through heart rate monitors which at the time were wired and were very large devices that you had to strap on um, and I was using one of the first sort of commercially available sports heart rate monitors at the time, um, right at the beginning of looking at, you know, lactate threshold training, uh, pulse rate training. So right in the early stages of that sort of work. And then it would have been probably 10 years after EMS first appeared um, that I was using it for strength training. Um, but this was really early day stuff. So the box had about 10 knobs on it, um, a whole host of wires and, and a complete lack of understanding of what I was doing with it, um, which lent to quite a lot of discomfort at the higher levels and a lot of experimentation as to, as to how to get any benefit out of it. Um, I believe subjectively it probably did, but after a while it just became so difficult that, that it sort of ended up in a corner 
and, and I didn't really return to it for probably another 10 years. It's not an uncommon story. I mean, there are, there is obviously still that, uh, not, I don't know whether mindset is the right word, but there still is a lot of that uh, in the industry, uh, particularly for some of the more basic units. Uh, you know, one of our priorities is to uh, make it as easy to use as possible. And obviously with, you know, selection of, of programs that are preset. So it's simply a stick it on, turn it on and go. I think obviously the advantages of working in this job and the ability to look at the best evidence um, and look at some of the development work that's been done in, in this field um, is increased that understanding really about how not, not just the potential for strength gain and explosive strength gain, of which there is significant evidence, um, but also the potential for recovery. And, you know, anybody that's involved in, in high-level sport increasingly these days knows the significance of recovery um, as, as part of the opportunity to win. Because if you're not recovering effectively or recovering between events effectively, you're, you're at a significant disadvantage. So the potential for these technologies to affect not just circulation increases, which, which is sort of fairly well-recognized principle, whether that was through massage or physio, um, but in terms of blood lactate reduction or some of the areas that we've talked about with microcurrent, the potential for that for promoting a healing cascade or reducing inflammation are areas that I've only just discovered through the work that we've been doing. Um, so I felt that potential for athletes particularly and, and the ease with which you've made that available, so you've touched on that, the, the simplicity of the operation of the device, even though the formulations of the technology is quite sophisticated, is a huge game changer because anybody can have access to it and it's non-pharmacological. So there's, there's little or no risk associated with its use. Um, and, and that's a huge shift from, from perhaps where I was when I was competing. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, point, isn't it? I mean, even with the pharmacological interventions and the performance-enhancing uh, drugs, or PEDs as they're often called, um, you know, it's not so much the actual output uh, that is where the, the gains are made. It's, it's the increased recovery, the ability to um, continue the volume and load, uh, which then, of course, creates adaptation uh, for the performance outputs. But, you know, uh, there's a, a little bit of a misconception, maybe not at the highest level, but certainly I think at, um, you know, whether it's weekend warrior or, you know, those just trying to keep fit, is most of the gains are made on the recovery side and then exhibited via the recovery side in the performance side. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. I think, I mean, as you know, I mean, increasingly in, in, in my sport, this division between whether you're a professional or just happen to be somebody that's a prosumer is getting, from a mindset point of view, um, is getting narrower and narrower and narrower because Absolutely. people are performing and, and undertaking things, which again... You know, just to go back to my military space, one of the reasons I joined the military is it let me do really cool things, fall out of airplanes and play sport. 
because I couldn't actually do that professionally. So the military was a, a good way for me to do that. Now the accessibility to be able to 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 to, to undertake those sorts of endeavours or push yourself in those sorts of endeavours um, is is much more commonplace. So the that line, I think, is becoming thinner and thinner and thinner. So people's appetite for this becomes um, increased and also their knowledge base gets better. So as, as the knowledge of training, as the knowledge of some of these areas increases, um, that accessibility to that knowledge also increases. So again, what I would have known when I was racing, for example, um, you'd really have to be in that, that area of sport to, to understand it at that level. Now it's much more accessible. Um, I think your other point, which again was, was one of the things that I sort of got led by the nose on, on this, is that the first inclination when you're looking at some of the technologies is about what are my performance gains? You know, mm. How can I increase and whatever it happens to be? Um, but actually that, that becomes much easier to quantify because power, um, explosive power, um, speed, strength, um, if you like, um, are the areas that have been shown to, to be improved by using, let's talk about um, electromuscular stimulation, for example. But, but what's interesting about that is that it's probably only relevant to a very small number of people and also relevant to a limited number of sports because it's explosive power and strength. And when you look at the training methodologies for that, um, it's quite small because it's a, a period of training, let's say six weeks. And I think, as you said, Rick, you know, the type of training you do varies if you're doing with a personal trainer or a coach. So your um, bioelectrical training would vary, but, but in principle, it's about six weeks. And after six weeks, the evidence is that those benefits start to tail off. So it's only a very short window of benefit that you have using it for performance. But the evidence for the potential uh, benefit for recovery is increasing. There hasn't been a lot of work done in that area until perhaps recently. And I, I also feel we're probably pushing a lot on this at the moment to, to start opening that discussion up about benefit. But, but the benefits to performance are significant and much more wide-ranging than, than, than it is for performance. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Benefits recovery is, is, is greater. Um, and then to come back to that point about, as you said, weekend warriors, is that if, if I'm cycling at top level these days, pretty much everything scientifically is brought forward to me. If I'm a prosumer, I sort of have to work it out for myself. I'm also not doing it as a job. So if I'm trying to get ready for something, not even as extreme as the O-Route, which is seven days and 19 coals, which is colossal, but that's happening you know, regularly. There are people out riding that. But, but let's take um, the cyclosportif calendar at the moment, which is burgeoning. Uh, and these are rides of probably 100 plus miles. Mm -hmm. And people riding very difficult courses have actually got to go back to work. So if you've ridden, you've actually got to go off on a Monday and go to work. And obviously with the age of that increasing, that becomes quite significant. So having these tools available to me, for example, has made a huge difference to, to my ability to, to recover. 
So I think for every person, that, that's a huge opportunity that perhaps um, we're only just starting to communicate to people. It's, you mentioned work there, which is obviously a, a, a big area of uh, discussion and exploration for us, particularly on the areas of occupational health. And, you know, with recent events with regards to uh, work from home and, you know, various other restrictions and difficulties in accessing gyms and physiotherapists and, and you know, uh, I suppose more what were formerly regular uh, access to different types of therapies or solutions. You've done a lot of market research as well as a lot of the um, application research in the area of occupational health. Uh, was there any parts of that that stood out specifically? Uh, you know, particularly, I suppose, uh, things like cost benefits analysis and these sorts of things. Do you, do you want to give our listeners a little bit of insight into what that may look like, particularly, I suppose, for those HR managers or or, you know, OH teams or even, even you know, small to medium enterprises that are thinking, how can we look after the health of our, you know, our workforce? Yeah, I mean, well, of all the things that we've looked at um, in terms of statistically, let's just start just numbers, because as much as we could talk about the human benefit of what we're doing um, and the social benefit of what we're doing, the economic benefit um, is a massive part of the argument for why these technologies offer um, such a such a game-changing opportunity, um, and particularly in things like occupational health and and the uh, the work the workplace. And why that is is because the statistics for the incidence of musculoskeletal disorders. Um, are significant. I mean, 8 out of 10 people will experience some form of musculoskeletal problem. Um, and that includes things like lower back pain, shoulder pain, um, repetitive strain injuries. Um, so that, that's a significant number. And it isn't just the UK. That, that's a WHO um, statistic, um, which when you think about it, is, is mind-boggling that we're going to suffer some form of, of musculoskeletal disorder. If we just look to the pain aspect of that and the pain costs of that to the workplace, um, the advantage to us is that that work's already been done because um, the health and safety executive run consistently statistical analysis on the incidence of work-related musculoskeletal disorders. So if we were just to look at pain, arthritic pain, um, muscular pain, um, and align that because we also know that our evidence for the efficacy of these technologies is, is very high. And it, although I would suggest almost irrefutable if you choose to look at the evidence objectively mm. about the mitigation of pain. So even if we just look at that level. Yeah, I was going to say from that uh, research, aside from what probably most perceive as obvious areas, things like drivers, um, office workers, or, or those seated for a long time. One that really did stand out and, and is probably relevant to current events is actually the healthcare workforce. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the HSC um, prioritised 
the sectors, of the top five sectors at risk of, of work-related, um, transport and storage, logically, construction is, is significant. Um, the healthcare industry is right up there in, in that as well. So that's everybody involved in that space. Um, so they're, they're right up there in the top five most at-risk industries and also on the numbers of cases that, that they actually have. Um, and it's the thing you said, Rick, low back pain being one of the most prevalent problems that they have. Um, as well as shoulder, knee and neck. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing was, that, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're almost standing on the shoulders of giants when we're looking at some of this research evidence because we're collating the very best evidence for the efficacy of the technologies um, in these areas. We are evolving that evidence, both in terms of the partnerships we're doing and also commissioning our own research to, to, to start to um, extend that, that understanding. Um, but also there's already been significant amounts of effort put into studies evaluating the cost to business of, for example, just lost days at work. Um, and even better, they looked at the implications of intervening with physical therapies, for example, to show how much more quickly people could return to work after work-related musculoskeletal if they had physical therapy. And they costed it. So, you know, for every pound put in, there was an amount saved by, um, at the other end, depending on what level the workers were at. So that, that cost-benefit of... Um, at that point, physical therapy was already well established. And as we know, not only does it supplement physical therapy, but in some cases can replace it. And from an employer's point of view, that's an outside cost. What we've also been talking about is by putting the devices into the workforce and allowing the workforce to self-administer. Um, I'm also becoming a good employer because my corporate governance is... He's, he's proactive and I'm starting to empower people with the measures and tools to take care of themselves. And the evidence is that if people are using the devices and using the technologies, uh, and I think you talked about driving, Rick, but it, it's applicable to, to healthcare um, as an everyday pain management tool or an everyday muscular conditioning tool, the incidence of absence goes down. So a cost-effective intervention with the workforce not only saves post-injury um, lost time, but it also mitigates anything um, and reduces the risk of having injury in the first place. It's an interesting, James, one. And James, you I'm assuming you would have um, come across this, uh, you know, in theatre, etc. but one of the highest prevalences is for surgeons and surgical teams who are, you know, in that prone position, um, stood and, uh, you know, over the patient for long periods of time is, uh, you know, they're, they're really high up on the risk factor for musculoskeletal issues. It's funny. I can remember when I very, very first started doing anaesthetics and when I got to the, you know, I got to the hospital and previously you're, you're kind of on your feet a lot and you're running around the wards as a junior doctor. because I was, you know, F1, F2 and took a bit year out to do some low coming in A&E, but you're, you know, you're on your feet, you're moving around, you're mobile, you end up walking miles. There's some quite funny like studies of, of just looking at how far junior doctors actually walk during the day. 
but it's quite an active role actually mm. and but kind of balanced i suppose would be the, a good word in the sense that you are walking and moving but it's interesting as soon as you do anesthetics you end up having to lean over patients and press face masks into patients and you know you're using your forearm muscles of, of one side more than the other and i started to develop this like lower back pain and which started to creep up my back and and all these different things and uh, you know i can <laughs> remember so vividly you know having to sort of stretch it out and it, it happens a lot i think i suppose when people first start doing a specialty if you're not particularly active before or or you're not kind of deadlifting every day and strengthening that side of things which by the way, I did actually genuinely go to a personal trainer and say, like, how do I fix this? And it was probably just deadlifting <laughs> and doing all those different things. So uh, not that I knew about bioelectronics at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's really interesting that, that obviously, yeah, your, your posturing, your positioning, doing those things is extremely unnatural and you're you're putting your body under certain strain. And as you as you say, for surgeons particularly that, that are steeped over doing that stuff, they're concentrating as well, and there's far more important things on their mind than a bit of lower back pain when they're trying to, you know, stop a bleed that might be in someone's thorax. You know, so I think, uh, yeah, that I can certainly see it, and and, and certainly appreciate that that's high amongst the medical workforce for all those reasons. Isn't yeah. that interesting, James? That. Time after time after time, and I, and I know a lot of this is anecdotal when, when we're talking to people or people have reviewed or talked about the benefit of the technology. This relationship with pain that people have, as you just said, the last thing you need to be doing is thinking about lower back pain, but it, it's significant. I mean, anybody that's had that pain or been any pain, really, that is, is prolonged, understands the significance of it, both from a limitation point of view and anxiety point of view. And for people that have been in that level of pain, let's use low back as an example, who are then coming back and, and reporting that not, not in weeks um, of using these devices, but in relatively short term, you know, within a week, finding that not only is that pain relieved and ameliorated but it hasn't come back again and to a lot of the people that i've spoken to about that this this significant shift from being in pain to not having pain is life-changing absolutely life-changing and there have been anecdotal stories of people with knee problems arthritis problems who are self-experimenting with these devices uh, and finding that it, it's relieving that aspect of of pain for them and, and becoming completely life-changing i think you're right it is it is life-changing you know i've done plenty of pain clinics you know in my anesthetic training days to to know how life-changing that can be but you know pain's a funny one for individuals and patients in that the body is meant to feel pain it's meant to show you that something's wrong and you're meant to change something on the back of it but that's not 100% of the time. You know, the, the body, whether it's um, chronic regional pain syndrome or there's all these different reasons why people can just be in pain and there's nothing actually structurally wrong. Because ultimately, pain is a, a, it's a, it's a sensation and a feeling and an emotion and all those different things, but it, it, it is felt by neurons and finds it way, its way back to the brain. Sometimes the pain can actually just originate that in that part of the brain so you can think you're feeling pain for a good reason in your hand in your foot in your knee 
but that pain might not actually be originating from there. You just have the sensation that it is from there. And I think the body can be rewired to get these things wrong. And it's a shame, it's a shame for people that in that situation, you know, and I can, I can, I can understand it from, you know, the surgeons and all those things, they are stooped over. They do have that poor posture and, and that will be the case. And you see them often, by the way, you know, they throw their elbows back and they do a lap of the operating theater and then they just get straight back to it because they know that they've got to, you know, mm. and they, they end up pushing through and not listening to their body from that perspective. But for others that there is no reason, you know, my, my, well, I can't say that actually, but someone that I know very well, I will just say has, um, has, has, has got a, a you know, chronic low back pain and radiating all the rest of it, but there's no structural damage at all. There's no, there's no structural reason for it. And, and the pain just needed to be relieved, you know, and you kindly sent one of your devices, Rick. So, you know, <laughs> um, and you suppose you know who it is now, but yeah, the, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a funny one pain and we all have a different experience of it. We, we don't know what anybody's, uh, what, what the person next to us feels in terms of pain or the reasons they feel it. But what we do know is that once you've exhausted all the reasons that that pain should be felt and you've corrected things structurally, if you're still feeling pain, that there's obviously other things that we need to do. And that's where things like this can really help. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, just, just today we, we saw a uh, proof of that video case study for one of our investors, who's a, a dentist and, you know, our early discussions were around actually for patient TMJ for the listeners. TMJ is a joint in your jaw. It's a, a, a common painful issue related to the jaw in particular mm, and wow. setting up, um, you know, some patient study with regards to that, cause it's quite a prevalent issue, obviously in, in, his sector anyway him having the the device sort of ended up you know when you when you have that there then you start to look at and and think about other you know other areas where it might be used and one for him was similar to the surgeons you know he's he's croned over you know inside people's mouths you know uh, with procedures etc and he's always got this tightness in the neck and, and shoulders particularly towards the end of the day and you know he just decided took it upon himself to start using it now he he wears it during the day to release that spasm and tightness and it just makes his day that much more comfortable and his ability to you know to um you know operate uh, as a professional uh, with the patients it's just made such a difference just to his day-to-day operations but something that he you know wouldn't have thought about uh, previously because what you know what are the options okay occasionally he can go for a massage or whatever it is but as you said aside from throwing arms back and um, you know trying to release some of that uh, tensions whilst in the middle of a procedure what other options are there um, yeah I mean, just to go back to your point about not, not just the human cost but the economics of this um, I think when I was looking at this before the cost of the UK economy for, for back pain, let's just say for lower back pain, I think is around 16 billion in, in direct costs and about 10 billion in indirect costs. And, and that was in 2000. And the NHS cost for, for, for back pain is around 40% of all sickness absence in the UK. So it's costing the NHS, I think, around 400 million a year. Um, so even by nibbling away at this, even by you know, sort of just 
touching part of that, there's a significant cost benefit as well as a human benefit mm, of, of using these technologies. Isn't it interesting how nobody seems to have a memory for pain when it comes to this? I mean, people <laughs> long-term discomfort, get hold of one of these devices, be very, very jaundiced about them in the first place and ask all sorts of questions, start using it, and then suddenly find that that problem is either resolved, mitigated, or, or goes away. And that, that's the last we hear of them. And so you go, did you get any result from that? Yeah, yeah, I'm walking again. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. But in all credit to, to those that, um, that you know, do have a memory for it. Yes. I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Even, even I myself, you know, I'm an, obviously an avid uh, user when needed and in the, in the past. Uh, even myself, you know, I, my occurrences are rare these days, but even when they are, I myself will will use it for that specific purpose. And then, you know, realistically, I should continue that, you know, course for a few days after, but we just forget about it. You know, if the pain's not there, the pain's not there. Um, you know, I really should be treating it for a, a day or two post, but um, simply I just don't think about it. Yeah, that, that you know, for... A positioning point of view, so as we go back to this brand messaging point of view, is that in a way we've almost had to concentrate on the incredible nature of this in order to, to make a convincing argument for, for why it actually works. And a lot of effort's gone into that. But, but to me, what was interesting is for it to become an everyday use item. So, so if we took the My Body, for example, or even the My Touch. So now within our household, and there's a lot of teenagers in our household, so anything is viewed with, with cynicism coming from the my age. But actually in using it and finding ways, and, and this, I've used that term for self-experimentation. So it may be because you know, we've got a dancer in the house, so she's got an ankle sprain, for example. So in the early days of using it, or a knee problem. So by using the device and getting relief from it, it almost crossed the credibility gap for her because it is now the go-to. So instead of picking up lotions, potions and pills for these ills, they're using the devices. So in, in pretty much every incident, whether you've got incidental pain or injury, um, they'll, they'll go and pick up the device rather than heading for um, the paracetamol or the abrufen. It is a paradigm shift. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of education, particularly on the consumer side, even more so on the clinician side, but you know, we, we're making great progress there but um there's no doubt uh kevin it's gonna be not not an uphill ill battle but you know there's certainly a volume of of work there to be done but as we've been finding especially lately with um you know with growing evidence that um you know a lot of clinicians scientists are uh, if they're not embracing it they're curious to want to know exactly you know what it is that it's doing and how that we're doing it and you know that's great for i think that's not just great for us but i think it's great for the industry in, in itself yeah i mean it's, as an observer as well as a participant in this that that's the thing i found absolutely um fascinating is the speed at which that um, assimilation has happened when, when we talked right at the beginning about the vision that you had, um, about what you foresaw of this, and we would have to go through this process, if you remember in the early days of when we were explaining this, is that, yeah, isn't that just a TENS machine? 
what's, what's that doing that a TENS machine cannot do? And, and very rarely do I ever hear that conversation anymore. And I think the acceptance, or perhaps not like acceptance is not even endorsement, but as you said, that the receptivity of people that are working in the space, that are qualified, that are working as GPs, that are working as surgeons, and the receptivity to the use of those technologies has happened, from what I can see, very quickly. Given that these technologies in various forms have been around for thousands and thousands of years, the, the push and acceptance for that has happened relatively quickly. And, I mean, we only st we started this, what, three years ago, really. Mm. And, and, and yeah. the speed at which that's happened, I think, is, is, is testament not only to, to the technologies, but the vision you brought to it in the first instance. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think a big part of that, uh, has, uh, even using your your contact as an example, James, is that, you know, we have been very fortunate to have had such great success in the application of, you know, our, our early, early development consumer products, um, which has sort of paved the way for us in the development processes in the numerous, uh, you know, clinical and market sectors that we're developing in or developing specific technology in? I, I think that speed also is relevant in, in many of the conversations I've had about this, is there's a general, not disbelief, but, but surprise that, that this speed of development of the technologies is so rapid. Um, I think a lot of the times people's perceptions of medical devices or drug studies are that they've got to go on for years, they've got to be tested, they've got to have clinical review, and that because it's a formulation process, that the speed of con coming up with the concept for evolving, um, let's say a different formulation or a different device, from, from concept to actual delivery is relatively short. So, so this first generation sets devices that, that, that are currently in market are, are simply the start of a journey to start producing and putting in place devices that are not only related to things like sport but on specific outcomes and specific problems and, and the arc of that is, is, is very broad um, so I've always found that quite an interesting not paradigm but, but a contrast I suppose between between what we're currently doing and what perhaps has happened conventionally. It's interesting that you talk about the, um, you know, the surprise and the journey and things like that. I think it's a funny one when you apply that to even, even you two guys, right? Who, before you got into bioelectronics, you didn't have an affinity for bioelectronics. Like you've only got this because you've had that surprise yourself that it worked and that the journey that you've been on looking at the evidence has proved to you guys that it's something that you do want to be part of. And I think that's the thing, you know, people can be surprised, people can be cynical, people can look at evidence and call it anecdotal. But it seems to me, you know, particularly, and I, you know, I keep mentioning this, but look, you know, looking at what McKinsey put out in the report last year about bioelectronics and the, and the potential of it, that there is kind of a sleeping giant here, right? And I think that's the, that's, that seems to be what, what I've seen since I've, you know, started being on this podcast with you guys and, and all the, and, and, you know, all the guests that have been on and, and all those things is that it seems that even if you were looking at it from an anecdotal lens, 
it's undeniable that the the sheer volume of anecdotal evidence is kind of hard to ignore and the feedback on the website you know just things like that and as i say i don't come at this with any horse in this race like at all i i can be impartial to this and actually i i think that's what i've seen you know i come from anesthetics where things are tried acupuncture all those different things they you know they call the evidence for acupuncture scanty here and there and all the rest of it but these are things that are done in pain clinics what we do know is that you can't give people opioids you can't keep giving and increasing doses of opioids for people when it comes to pain let alone the other things that that you know you guys have shown this stuff can do but i think that's just it right is that it seems to me, and we talked about this on the last episode, didn't we, Rick, about, about the, the comparison of standards when it comes to bioelectronics versus pharmacology. And it seems that the number needed to treat for a pharmacological invention can be six, eight, ten. So it takes ten people to treat one person's pain and reduce it by 50%, and that's considered a good drug. Well, how much do we need to prove this to be good in order for people to turn around and say, yeah, we might try it? it seems slightly unfair at the moment and again i'm coming at this quite impartially right like genuinely i don't have a horse in the race but it's interesting to me james i think so yes this this layman i I hesitate to use that word but um outside you the the, the out of the box view which rick had at the beginning And, and that was beyond anything else the bit that really interested me because as soon as i started reading uh, and looking at the evidence and looking at the systematic reviews, I started to compile that information. I, <laughs> I really don't understand this. How has anybody not actually seen that you can join this up in these ways, that you can actually start to bring that very best evidence and start to think about formulating these frequencies and sets together to get these outcomes? Because from what I've seen, there seems to be all these different evidences, you said, for different studies producing different outcomes. And I think at the time he said, I don't know really. It's just like you're walking down the street, you see something and everybody else is walking past it. And you, you sort of stand there and pick it up and it turns out to be something of immense value. Um, and that seemed so interesting to me that somebody would look at it like that and you think, yeah, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And it wasn't even the idea of selling devices, really. Um, and that wasn't what we spoke about right at the beginning. I mean, I, I'm done with brand. You know, I've launched every ridiculous, unnecessary thing that consumers possibly need <laughs> 20 years. So, you know, the ethical insight of flogging Tamagotchis to people or believing that this is the best phenomenon. I've sort of transcended that. I thought, I don't need to be doing this anymore. It's getting really freaky. And I, I just Tamagotchis were great, by the way. I thoroughly enjoyed Tamagotchis. <laughs> <laughs> so renewable. But I, I just genuinely felt that, you know, and, and increasingly as we started talking about AI, we started talking about the way that people marketed at. Um, and when I started doing this, I mean, it was through conventional channels and you could tell really good stories and people would get behind it. But there was a degree of participation from people. It was almost like a permissive that people sort of knew it was a bit of a scam, but... Whereas now it's so sublimal. So I'd done with all that. But this sense that Rick was talking about, about almost resting this insight, this evidence out of the hands of big corporate, out of the hands of areas that had already been using it, because this neurostim 
that, that I was talking about earlier has been around for 50 years. They've been implanting these things in people um, for, for managing pain. But it was almost taking that knowledge out of, of that space and empowering it and giving it to people themselves. So by putting it into these devices and giving it to all age groups for conditions where people could actually use that technology was empowering people with things they otherwise wouldn't wouldn't have. And I think that's been a driver through everything that, that, that's been going on with NeuroCore. And I think that's what's been separating it out from not only just our competitors, but, but this vision and philosophy to, to bring these technologies in easy to use ways to as many people as possible. Um, and, and that's not just the UK, it, it, it's international. Excellent, thanks Kevin. Thanks All James. Right. No worries. Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Bioelectronics Podcast by NeuroCore and for making it to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. We'd much appreciate it. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest electronic content.